Well, I'm sure that most of you have been in the position of applying for a job. Uh, I know since coming here to Houston, I've applied for many jobs. And uh, as you go through that process, you realize that the hiring company has a certain standard, has certain requirements that they're looking for in the candidates that they're seeking to choose. They have specific requirements on your education, on your experience, on your background, uh, on your giftings, how much time you're willing to work. In my case, are you willing to work the weekends? But, you know, there's all sorts of different things of, of what they're looking for. Uh, when I was pastoring in Georgia, we needed to hire uh, a youth pastor and a children's ministry director. And so it was my responsibility now to go from you know, the position I knew, which was you know, being that person who was looking for a job and being under those requirements, to the person who is now hiring and coming up with the requirements that we were looking for. What kind of education? What kind of background? What kind of spiritual maturity? What kind of candidate were we looking for to fulfill uh, these different positions? Now, I bring this up because here in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to make quite a significant decision. Uh, He's going to choose 12 disciples. He's going to choose 12 men to invest in, 12 men to teach, 12 men to live with, ultimately. But most importantly, 12 men that he is going to entrust to tell the world about him when he departs. Now, I want you to think about something. If God gave you the responsibility to choose 12 disciples of Jesus. If you were given that role of being that person who was hiring, so to speak, these 12 disciples, what would you be looking for in those 12 people? What would be the specific requirements that you would probably come up with to make sure you found the right candidates to be the disciples of Jesus? Maybe what kind of education What kind of experience, what kind of background, what kind of spiritual maturity, what kind of giftings would you be looking for if you said, you know what, I'm going to be the person finding the 12 disciples of Jesus. And after you had all your candidates with all their resumes, what would you do to help you to choose which 12 you should pick? You got all these people to choose from. What would you do to help you make that final decision? Well, as we look at the 12 disciples that Jesus chooses, I want you to think about those questions. I want you to think about the kind of people that you would choose, the the kind of requirements that you would have, and what you would do ultimately to help you make that choice. And as we see what Jesus does, see if what you would have done compares to and matches up with what he did. So Luke chapter 6, continuing on from where we left off last week, starting in verse 12, says this, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his twelve disciples to himself, or sorry, disciples to himself, not the twelve. And from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So at this point in time, we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke, there's lots of people following Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, he has this huge crowd of followers always with him. And now he's at a point in his ministry where he has to make a choice. It's time to choose 12 guys that are going to stand apart from the crowd, 12 guys that he's going to invest in more than anyone else, 12 guys that he's going to teach and live with and pour into. And it's time to now choose them. Now, this is obviously a very big decision. 
And if you had this decision, what is it that you would do right now? You have all these candidates, and now you're about to choose. What would you do to help make sure you made a wise choice? Well, notice what Jesus does before he makes this decision. We're told he goes up to a mountain by himself alone, and he spends all night in prayer before he makes this very important decision. You know, I think most likely he's praying that the Father would give him wisdom on which 12 to choose. I think prayer is something that is so important to do before making decisions. And and the bigger the decision is, I believe the more prayer that you should invest in that. When you have a huge decision, there should be a huge amount of prayer that you give to that before making that decision, looking to God, asking Him to give you wisdom. I think too often we make decisions without praying. Too often we make decisions without seeking God at all for His wisdom, for His direction in the decisions that we're making. And you know, when you and I do that, what we're basically saying is, God, I don't really need your wisdom in this situation. I don't really need your direction in this circumstance. Or maybe I'm just not interested in your wisdom or your direction. You see, I think as as Christians, we often claim, oh yes, I want and I desire God's wisdom and God's direction in all different circumstances of life, but we prove that that's not actually true when we don't pray. When decisions come before us and we face them and we don't pray, you know, we can claim all we want, oh yeah, I want God's wisdom, oh yeah, I want God's direction, but our lack of prayer demonstrates actually that's not true. You know, I look back on my Christian life and there was so much of my life where I would make that claim of, oh, I definitely want God's direction in every area, God's wisdom in every area. But I found I rarely prayed for his direction, for his wisdom. And so I proved, you know what, the one I really want direction and wisdom from is me, not God. I'm fine with directing myself. I'm fine with my own wisdom because I'm never coming before him and seeking him to give me that wisdom and that direction that I claim I need. You know, God wants to guide you. He wants to direct you. He wants to give His wisdom to you. But you know what? He doesn't force it upon you. He doesn't make you follow it. He doesn't make you have it. It's something that He just says, it's here. It's accessible. You just need to come and ask. A great verse is James chapter 1, verse 5. It says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know, this is such a wonderful promise of God that says, you know what, if you lack wisdom, which we all do, then come to God who gives liberally and without reproach. He will give you the wisdom that you ask of Him. He just wants you to come and seek Him and ask Him. You know, I encourage you this week, try putting this into practice. All of us make decisions every day. Some are little, some are big. But I encourage you, you know what, before making a decision, just come before the Lord and just say, you know what, I'm going to take James chapter 1, verse 5 serious, and I'm just going to say, Lord, would you give me wisdom here? Give me your direction. Give me wisdom in this decision that I'm making. And watch what he does. Watch how much wiser your decisions become. So after Jesus spends all night in prayer, he comes down from the mountain, he comes to his followers, and he chooses 12 to be His disciples. We're told he chooses Peter and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Now, I want you to notice something interesting here about 
the disciples because I think we have a tendency to focus on all that God did through them, especially in the book of Acts, that we kind of forget how they started. We see, man, look at these guys. We read Acts. They're so godly. They're so spiritual. God would use them in such amazing ways. And, and we have this picture of them. And I think oftentimes we put them on this pedestal because of what God did in the latter part of their life. But we often miss how they started at the beginning when they first started following Jesus. Because the reality is, these guys started off just like you and me. And when we look at them and they say, oh, they're so much more godly than I am. They're so much more spiritual than I am. They're so much more gifted than I am. They're so much more used than I am. And sometimes we kind of think, I could never be used like that because these people are so much more spiritual than me. And what we're doing is we're looking at what God has done in their life through a long time. And we don't come back to the point of, well, actually, where is it that they started from? You know, I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't choose the highly educated or the ones who'd been through the religious schools. He chose common men. He chose fishermen. He chose tax collectors. These men probably wouldn't have passed the education requirements that we most likely would have placed if we were in charge of, who are the 12 that we're going to choose? Well, first of all, how many of you have been to some kind of religious school? Okay, well, none of you 12 have, so you're off the list. And, you know, that probably would have been a group that many of us would have not chosen because the requirements that we would have had maybe would have included that. But notice also Jesus chooses Peter. Peter, who's always putting his foot in his mouth. Peter, who ends up denying Jesus three times. He chose James and John, who are called the sons of thunder. Now, if you don't remember why they're called the sons of thunder, Jesus is in Samaria. Samaria rejects him, or people in Samaria reject him and his message. And James and John says, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to consume these people like Elijah called fire from heaven down? So James and John, they were ready to wipe these people out. And Jesus called them the sons of thunder because you know, they weren't very loving. They weren't very graceful. Uh, they were quite harsh in their start with Jesus. As we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus to- chose a tax collector. A man who was looked upon as a horrible sinner in that society who the Jews despised and hated. And then he also chooses, which I find interesting, Simon, who we're told is a zealot. The zealots hated Rome, and they despised tax collectors because tax collectors were in cahoots with Rome uh, trying to get money for them. And so (laughs) Matthew and Simon together would have been uh, quite an interesting group there. And then we're told that he chooses Judas. And we know Judas ultimately is the one who will betray him. You know, little children are brought to Jesus. And imagine as a parent, you see Jesus, this great, wonderful teacher, this great healer, and you're trying to bring your child to him so that Jesus can pray for your child. And these 12 guys stand there and they stop you and they say, get your kids out of here. Jesus is too busy. That's what these disciples did. And Jesus has to tell them, hey, let the kids come to me. You know, I want to touch them. I want to pray for them. But these disciples are like, oh, we don't want any of these kids around here. He chose a group of men, if you go through the, well, we will go through and we'll find out. They're always arguing about which one of us is the greatest. Oh, I'm better than you. I'm greater than you. I mean, these guys are kind of bickering, kind of like little kids oftentimes. He chose men that seemed to constantly miss what he was trying to teach, especially the fact that he was going to die on the cross. They didn't get it. Not until they actually died did it finally sink in that he's been telling you over and over, I'm going to die, and they wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't accept it. You see, we often look at the end result of all that Jesus did through these men, but we miss the amount of issues that they had at the start. And I'm encouraged by that because the reality is Jesus had to change them. He had to work in them. He had to help them grow. You know, when we choose people, we basically look at what they've done in the past and what they're doing now. 
When you go to a job, that's what they want to know. What have you done in the past, and what are you presently doing? And now we're going to base those two things on whether or not we're going to hire you. That's what we look at. But you know what? Jesus adds another thing that we don't look at. He sees our past. He sees the present. But you know what he also sees? He sees the future. He sees what he can do to change you. He sees when you place your life in his hands, when you believe in him, he recognizes what he can do to change you and to use you to be more like him. I think Peter's a great example of this because Peter's name was Simon. And the name Simon means shifting sand. And if you look at Simon before he's Peter, you you see the reality of that's his life. He's constantly putting his foot in his mouth. He's denying Jesus. But Peter means the rock. And after uh, the Holy Spirit comes into Peter, we see he's the first one to stand up, not deny Jesus, but preach the gospel. 3,000 people get saved. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that Jesus took shifting sand and made him the rock. And Jesus knew, I can change you. I can do a work in you. Jesus didn't choose people who had everything together. He chose people who needed a lot of work. He chose people like you and me. People who are sinners. People who have a lot of things to overcome in their lives. People who have a lot of things that need to change. And hopefully this encourages you. I know it encourages me that if, if Jesus can use guys like he did with the disciples, he can use you and I. The disciples didn't do so many amazing things for God because they were such great men who didn't have any problems or any issues like we do. The disciples were used greatly because God changed them. And through the power of His Spirit, He enabled them to do amazing things for Him. And we have that same God who wants to change us. And we have that same Spirit living in us to empower us to do that work. So don't look at the disciples of Jesus or others in the Bible and think, oh man, I could never be like them, because that's not the reality of what Scripture shows us. They're all people who had issues that God had to change and work in, just like we do. They were used, not because they were greater, but because they were willing to allow God to change their life. They were willing to be obedient to Him. They were willing to say, here, here's my life. I want you to change me. I want you to use me. I think the reality is God wants to do great things in all of us. But it comes back to what we ended with last week. That when God commands us to do something, He will also enable us to accomplish what He commands us to do. And we've got to trust that. Then when He says, you know what, I want you to do this, instead of making excuses and saying, oh, but God, I can't. No, trust that He will enable you to do what He commands you to do and be obedient to that. That's what we see in the book of Acts as these men finally came to this place where it says, you know what, we're just going to obey. We're just going to trust God that you can do the impossible in us and through us. And I think one of the biggest things that keeps us from being used by God in great ways is our lack of obedience to Him. Our lack of trust in the fact that He can do great things in and through us. So Jesus chooses the twelve disciples and now let's see what happens next in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with the crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were with torment with unclean spirits. And they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. Then he lifted his eyes towards his disciples and said, so after choosing the 12 disciples, Jesus comes down the mountain. There's this huge crowd there, and Jesus is healing people, and there's this power going out of Him, and He's touching all those who came to Him. And we're told that a great multitude of people is now coming. 
Now, we've already seen that people have come down from the south, from Jerusalem and Judea, to come up, and people have already been in the region of Galilee. But now we have people coming from the north, from Tyre, uh, from Sidon, and they're coming down to find out about this Jesus. And so after Jesus is healing people and doing all this, we're told that he lifts his eyes and he starts to teach. Now, Luke has mentioned very many times so far in this gospel that Jesus is teaching the multitude, teaching in the synagogue, but yet we haven't seen any message. Luke hasn't recorded for us what Jesus has taught. He's just told us that he's taught a lot. Well, now Luke is taking some time to give us a record of one of Jesus's sermons. Now, there's a debate among scholars as to whether or not Luke is referring to the Sermon on the Mount here, uh, or whether it's just a very similar teaching to the Sermon on the Mount. If you compare them, uh, they're, they're very, very similar. Uh, I personally lean to the fact that this was the sermon that Jesus shared often, uh, and that they're not necessarily identical, uh, but that Jesus preached a very similar sermon in the different places that he went to. But whether Jesus preached this ten times or he only preached it once on the Sermon on the Mount is kind of irrelevant because the fact is we still need to study it and we still need to learn it no matter how many times Jesus shared it. So verse 20, we're going to start here with this great sermon that Jesus preaches and it says this, Then he lifted his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets." So Jesus starts this sermon bringing up four different groups, four groups that are going to be blessed. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word that Luke uses here that's translated blessed, it's something that's important to understand because the Greeks had a lot of different words that we would translate blessed into English. And the end result of all these words were the same. It was a deep happiness and abundant joy as a result of the blessing. The difference is, what was it that was causing this joy? What was it that was causing this deep happiness? That is the difference of these different words. So the different Greek words were used. One would be, you know, if, you, if your circumstance was good, you just got a pay raise. You know, then they would have a specific word that was focused more on your circumstances. And that's why you had this abundant joy and, and this deep um, happiness. But if the cause of your blessing was something that came from God, the Greek word that they would use was makarios, signifying that the cause of your blessing was from God. And so when we see this word blessed here in this sermon, Luke is using this Greek word that means a deep happiness and abundant joy that only comes from God. It's signifying that reality of, you know, this is coming from God. It's not just something that you have because your circumstances are good. Now, the first group that Jesus says are blessed or have a deep happiness and abundant joy that only comes from God are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, if you do look in Matthew's gospel and you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Almost all commentators agree that this is what Jesus is referring to here when he says blessed are the poor, that he's focusing on 
poor in spirit. Because nowhere in the Bible do we see that because someone is physically poor that they're going to receive the kingdom of God. That that's not something, well, you have to be physically poor if you want God's kingdom. Ultimately, you have to be poor spiritually before you will receive the kingdom of God. So that's the focus here. Someone who's poor spiritually. Now, there are different levels of poverty in our society today. There are definitely different levels of poverty in the day that this was written. Uh, And Luke uses the Greek word which was used for the lowest form of poverty. It means to have absolutely nothing, to be completely poverty-stricken, to be totally destitute, helpless, and powerless. So by using this Greek word, Luke is saying, you know what, this is the lowest form of poverty that there is. Now, something important to understand is that Luke wrote this gospel in Greek, but Jesus would have taught this sermon in Hebrew. And the reason that Luke uses this word in Greek for the lowest form of poverty is because Jesus in Hebrew would have used the Hebrew word for the lowest form of poverty. Now, I bring that up because there is a little bit of a difference between the Greek word for the lowest form of poverty and the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word that Jesus would have used here describes a person who has absolutely nothing and completely poverty-stricken, just like the Greek word does. But the difference is, because of that poverty, that person put their whole trust in God. See, in Hebrew, they recognize if you are totally poverty-stricken, then you only have one choice, and that is to place your trust in God, because He's the only one who could help you in the circumstance that you had. Now, in the Greek language, it doesn't have that reality, and so I want to bring that up, because when Jesus is teaching this, the disciples and those listening would have recognized, you know, it's not just someone who's totally poverty-stricken, but because of their poverty, they have to now place their trust in God. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who recognize they have absolutely nothing spiritually and they humble themselves and put their trust in God. And when people do that, Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, if you want the kingdom of God, there's a a prerequisite. There's something that has to be done. You have to recognize you have absolutely nothing spiritually. You have to humble yourself and you have to trust God to give you what you need. Poverty of spirit is something that has to come first. And if it doesn't, we're never going to receive the kingdom of God. As long as we harbor illusions that out of our own spiritual resources, we're going to receive you know, from God what we need. If we think that we can work our way or earn our way, then we've missed it. Each person has to come to this reality that they are in complete spiritual poverty. There's absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves that they have to completely trust in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. It's only those who first recognize their spiritual depravity that will finally come to realize their need for spiritual life in Jesus Christ. Now, the problem with mankind is that many of us don't want to acknowledge, don't want to recognize that we have nothing spiritually, that we're in need of God's help, but we're not in need of anyone. We can do it ourselves. We can get to God ourselves. That's the mindset of of many in this world. They don't want to acknowledge what God says about us, that we're all sinners, that we've fallen short of His glory. We want to think of ourselves as good people who can earn our way to God, earn our way to salvation. But the reality is, they never will. They'll never receive the kingdom of God because they haven't first recognized they're poor in spirit. They haven't first come to the reality of, you know what, I don't have it 
I don't have it all together. I'm a sinful person who needs God desperately. And until you come to that place, you're never going to cry out to Him. You're never going to ask for His forgiveness. You're never going to ask for Him to come and deal with your sin because you don't think you need Him. One of the main things that God wants us to acknowledge is that without Him, we can do nothing. And that without Him, we have nothing spiritually. So we have to humble ourselves and come to Him and ask Him to give us what we need spiritually. But the great thing that we see here is He'll do it. That's one of the blessings. If we will humble ourselves and recognize, I don't have it spiritually. I need you to give it to me, God. He says, wonderful, come to me and ask, and I will bless you with that. I will give to you what you spiritually need. I will give you the kingdom of God. Come to me, ask for forgiveness of your sins, and I will give you that forgiveness. So the first group that's blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize they have nothing spiritually and need God to give it to them. The second group that Jesus says will be blessed are those who hunger now, for they shall be filled. Now once again in Matthew's sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that we have recorded there, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And once again, the focus here is not on physical hunger, that you know, if you're hungry, then you know, you're going to be filled. It's if those who are hungry for something spiritual, for righteousness, Jesus says those who hunger for that, they're going to be filled. Now Luke uses the Greek word that was used for the most severe hunger. It means to be in immediate need, to starve, to crave as if your life depended on it. Now if you actually were starving to death, how bad would you want food? I mean, that would be the focus of every day. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to focus on getting and finding food. I'm starving to death. I'm in desperate need of food because literally my life depends on it. If I don't get food now, I'm going to die. And so Jesus is saying, when someone hungers like that for righteousness, when they have that passion where it's like, I will do anything I can to get that, being hungry for that right standing for God. Jesus is saying, blessed is the person who hungers for righteousness like a person starving because they will be filled. Now before someone will hunger for something, they must first recognize they don't have it and that they need it. Because if you don't recognize you don't have it and you need it, then you're not going to hunger for it. I think one of the greatest deceptions in the world today is that people believe, you know what, my standing before God is right. I have a right standing before Him. I'm fine. Me and God are good. There's no problem between us. And because they think that, they're not seeking to get a right standing before God because they think they already have a right standing before God. They say things, you know, I'm a good person, and surely, you know, when I die and I stand before God, you know, I'm going to have a right standing with Him. He's going to let me in because I'm a good guy. My good has outweighed my bad. And so we come with this concept of we actually have a good standing. And so therefore, we're not seeking and hungering for righteousness, for a right standing before God, because people think they already have it. One of the greatest deceptions the enemy uses. Jesus is saying, blessed are those that recognize that they don't have a right standing before God, and they're starving to receive that right standing, because they will receive that right standing in a relationship with Jesus. It's another wonderful blessing. He's saying, you know what, if you recognize you don't have a right standing for God and you desire that, you hunger for that, you want that, then God says, you know what, I will give it to you. I've already paid the price on the cross. I already sent my son to deal with it. You just come to me and ask and I'm willing to give it to you. I will bless you with filling you with what you need, giving you that right standing that you don't have without me. The third group that Jesus says will be blessed are those who weep now for you shall Laugh. 
And once again, the Greek word that Luke uses here, translated weep, uh, is one of the, the strongest ones in the Greek language. It's a loud expression of grief and mourning for the dead. This Greek word was used to express in the Greek language the, the greatest level of mourning. And probably for us today, this is where we kind of maybe put our greatest level of mourning of, hey, when someone dies that we love, that's when we mourn the most. That's why they use this word to say a loud expression of grief and mourning for the dead. But as I mentioned earlier, Luke recorded this sermon in Greek, but Jesus spoke it in Hebrew. In the Hebrew language, the strongest word for weeping is not weeping for someone who died, The strongest is weeping and have this sense of mourning because you sinned against God. Interesting that for them, the greatest form of weeping, the thing that should cause you the most sadness, is not a loved one dying, it's the fact that you've sinned against God. Now for the Greeks, it was a loved one dying, and probably for most people in our society, it's a loved one dying. What it should be for us as Christians is a recognition that, you know what, I should weep for the fact that I have sinned against God. So when Jesus taught this sermon... And he said, blessed are those who weep. He would have used the uh, Hebrew word abal, which means to grieve, to weep, to mourn, to express great sadness for your sin against God. And when the disciples heard this, they would have recognized he's speaking about weeping because you've sinned against the Lord. And when Jesus says, blessed are those who weep, he's just not speaking about weeping over anything. He's definitely focused on a specific thing, that, that sin that we've done to God. Now, before you can weep or mourn over your sin, once again, you first have to recognize that you do sin, recognize how horrible sin is, and recognize the punishment that sin deserves. You must recognize how it separated us from God and that the punishment for sin is hell. And Jesus says when someone weeps like that, when someone recognizes their sin, when someone recognizes that they've done this against God and they're saddened and they're mourning and they're repentant of that sin... He says, they will be comforted. 1 John 1.9, actually Colson was quoting this in this prayer. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is such a wonderful promise of God that if we come to Him with a recognition that we have sinned and we confess it to Him, He is always faithful and just not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from the unrighteousness that that sin brings into our life. The fourth group that Jesus says will be blessed are those who, when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus says, blessed are people when they're hated, excluded, reviled, and spoken evil of for Jesus' sake because their reward will be great in heaven. Now, a very important thing to note here is why this group is being hated, why this group is being excluded and and reviled against and spoken evil of. The reason that's happening is because of Jesus' sake, because they are living for Jesus, because they are being obedient to Jesus. And because of living for Jesus, this world is now responding by hating them, by excluding them, by reviling them, by speaking evil of them. And I bring this up because as a pastor, I've encountered a lot of Christians who kind of misread this verse and they think that any type of persecution that they receive, oh, I'm going to be blessed for. Because Jesus says, you know, if this happens to me, I'm going to be blessed. But understand, it's a blessing only when you're reviled and spoken evil of against you because of living for Jesus. 
See, I know a lot of Christians, people are persecuting them because of their own sin. They're jerks to people, and they get persecution because of it, and they think, oh, I'm going to receive these great blessings. No, you're not. You're just getting the consequence of your evil behavior. You're only getting blessed when you're living for Jesus, and people are rejecting you for that. When you're living for Jesus, and they're rejecting you and speaking evil of you, then Jesus says, there's a great blessing that comes because you lived for me, and this world rejected you, and now you're going to be blessed in heaven because of it. But don't think, oh, well, because these people in the world you know, persecute me because I'm a jerk to them or I lose my temper against them or, or any other reason that's sinful, well, that's just a consequence of our sin. There's no blessing that comes with that. So Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for His sake. But I think something important to remember is what we're told in 2 Timothy 3.12. We're told, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You know, I have yet to go into someone's home, and, and you go into a lot of homes, and they have all these scriptures posted up, these promises of God that are there that they want to be reminded of. I have yet to see this promise in anybody's home. I yet to see someone, you know, quote this over and over, day after day. Oh, yes, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I just want to hold on to that promise. The reality is, when we live for Jesus, we are promised persecution. It's not, well, if you live for Jesus, you might get persecuted. The Bible's saying, you know what, if you live for Jesus, there's a guarantee you are going to be persecuted. Now, obviously, there's greater levels of persecution that are out there, but if you're living for Jesus, you're living against the ways of this world, and they will persecute you for it. I think a good question to look and look at your life is say, you know what, if I have no persecution whatsoever from this world, maybe I need to ask the question, am I really living for Jesus? Because it's told us here, if we're living for Jesus, we will be persecuted. So if there's no persecution, then perhaps the light that I'm supposed to be shining is not shining at all. And that's why the world's not persecuting me, because they can't even see that I live for Jesus. But you know what? We're told that when we're persecuted, we should do something. It says, rejoice. Now, when's the last time anyone here has rejoiced over being persecuted? Oh, thank you, Jesus, for this persecution. I'm so grateful for that. I mean, that's not a common response. That's not a normal response for us of of rejoicing in persecution. But I want you to know, Jesus actually isn't saying rejoice because this persecution is difficult, because this circumstance is so horrible, and just rejoice in that horrible circumstance. That's not what he's saying. He says, you know what? I want you to rejoice in what this is bringing to you. It's accomplishing something for you. It's bringing something to you that is great. And that's what you should rejoice. And don't rejoice in the persecution itself. Rejoice in what the persecution actually brings to your life. You see, we're told that when we're persecuted, we receive rewards from God in heaven. So he's saying, rejoice in the fact that you now are going to receive a reward because you've been persecuted. And therefore, we can see persecution in a little bit of a different light instead of being so down and why, God, would you allow this or whatever? Jesus is saying, you know what, just rejoice. Hey, yes, you're going through this difficulty. People are rejecting you and speaking evil of you because you're living for me and it's hard in this life and I understand it. But you know what? When you come to heaven, there's rewards awaiting you because of the persecution that you faced. And you know what? Also, we're in good company. We're told that the prophets before us were also persecuted. The prophets of Jesus who came, they were persecuted as well. And so we shouldn't expect anything different. Because as Timothy told us, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So Jesus starts this sermon giving us four groups that are blessed. 
Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who recognize they don't have a right standing before God and hunger for it, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who recognize the severity of their sin and weep over it, for they shall laugh and be comforted. And blessed are those who persecuted for Jesus' sake, for great is their reward in heaven. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying here is, blessed are those that recognize their need for Him and live for Him, because they are going to have wonderful blessings. So Jesus starts with four blessings, and then He's going to move on now to four woes. Verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you have... For you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Now, something important to note here is that all of these woes are the exact opposite of the blessing. So, woe to those who don't recognize their spiritual poverty. Woe to those who don't recognize that they don't have a right standing before God and don't hunger for it. Woe to those who don't recognize the severity of their sin and weep over it. Woe to those who are spoken well of because that's how they spoke of the false prophets as well. Now I want you to note the timing of this teaching where Luke brings this in because last week, who did we encounter? We encountered the villains of our story. We have the religious leader, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they came after Jesus and they tried to, you know, they brought all these different challenges and questions and rebukes towards him. And we just finished that, and now Jesus chooses the 12 disciples and he starts this teaching. And it's very interesting to me because he tells of the people who are blessed and then he gives these woes, and these woes describe the Pharisees and the scribes to a T. They were people who didn't recognize their spiritual poverty. As we noted, they thought they were spiritual giants, and Jesus always calls them hypocrites because they want to be seen as these great spiritual guys, but really, in all reality, they weren't spiritual at all. They were people who didn't recognize they didn't have a right standing before God. They thought all the works that they were doing were going to make them right before God, but they weren't right before God. They were people who didn't recognize the severity of their sin and weep over it. Instead, they rebuked Jesus for spending time with tax collectors and sinners instead of realizing they were sinners in need of Jesus. And they were people that weren't persecuted for following Jesus. Instead, they were the ones persecuting Jesus. So Jesus starts this sermon telling us of those who were blessed, and ultimately those who are blessed are those that recognize their need for Him and come to Him. And then He tells us of those who aren't blessed, which ultimately are those that don't recognize their need for Him and those that don't Come to him. Now, as Jesus continues his teaching, he's focusing on this group that's blessed. He's focusing on this group that has recognized their need for him, that has come to him, because as he shares now some really challenging things, the reality is only those who have accepted Jesus, only those who have the power of the Holy Spirit, can actually do what the rest of this sermon says. If you come to this sermon and you're a non-Christian and you read this and you think, I'm going to put this into practice, you're never going to accomplish this. None of us can do this in our own strength. None of us can do this in our own power. We have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we go through this sermon, you're going to realize how difficult it would be. And we're going to start with the first thing that Jesus says, which in my opinion is the most difficult thing that he says in this whole sermon. Verse 27, he says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. 
And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from who you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. This command here from Jesus is the most difficult, in my opinion, of this whole sermon, and He tells us to love our enemies. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is challenging us here, we need to know what this Greek word translated love means. You see, in English, we only have one word for love. And so when we hear the word love, we have all sorts of thoughts that come to our mind because we start thinking about the people we love. We start thinking about the way in which we love them. We start thinking about the feelings of love that we have towards them. So when we get this challenge to love our enemies, we often assume that God is commanding us to love our enemies in the same way that we would love our parents, in the same way that we would love our spouse, in the same way that we would love our children, in the same way that we would love our friends. And and we're just like, oh, I can't do that. But the Greeks had several different words for love to clarify what kind of love they were talking about. Storg was the Greek word uh, used for love between a parent and a child that deep affection that there is between a parent and a child. Eros, where we get our English word erotic, speaks of the erotic love between a married couple. Phileo was the word the Greeks used for a brotherly love uh, or a deep friendship. And with each one of these Greek words for love, it describes this this feeling of affection, this romance, this, this friendship. And those feelings are usually given to people who then reciprocate them back to you. You demonstrate that feeling of love, you get it back, and and that's that nice relationship that you have. So for the most part, when we think about love, it's usually connected with some kind of feeling, a feeling of affection, a feeling of romance, a feeling of friendship that we have towards other people and that they give back towards us. And so when we hear this command, love your enemy, we struggle with it because we think, I don't have any of those feelings towards my enemies. Actually, the feelings I have towards my enemies, I won't even talk about because it's definitely not loving feelings and we think how in the world can we be commanded to have that feeling of love for these people that are so horrible to me well actually we're not commanded to have a feeling of love when jesus says love he uses a greek word agape agape is a love that loves the unlovable it loves the unlovable not because it feels some kind of love for them but because it makes a choice to love them even though you don't feel like loving them It chooses to love that which does not love it back. So when Jesus says, love your enemy or agape your enemy, he's not saying you have to have a feeling of love for them. You have to have a feeling of affection for them. You have to have a feeling of friendship for them. He says, no, you don't have to have any of those feelings. Just make a choice to demonstrate love to them, even though you don't have any of those feelings, because that's what agape does. It's a love that gives without expecting anything in return. And that's what Jesus tells us to do towards our enemies. So Jesus starts off by saying, love your enemies, and then he goes on to give us several different ways that we can practically do that. The first way we can practically love our enemies is to do good to those who hate us. Now, 
Those who hate us, uh, would you agree that they would probably be in our enemy category? People who hate you are usually people that you would place in the enemy category. And when someone hates you, they usually try and hurt you. They speak bad of you. They try and take advantage of you. They definitely don't do anything good for you. So Jesus is saying, you know what? A practical way to love your enemy is respond with good to those who hate you and don't do anything good for you. Don't just do good things for people who do good things back to you. Instead, do good things for people who don't do any good back to you, people who hate you, people who want nothing but bad things for you. The second way Jesus says we can practically love our enemy is bless those who curse you. Now, this Greek word translated bless means to praise, to speak kindly of, to cause to prosper, to bestow blessing upon. And the Greek word translated curse means to speak evil against someone, to cause destruction, to curse. So ultimately, Jesus is challenging us to do the opposite of what is happening to us. When people curse us, when they want to cause bad things to happen to us, we should respond not cursing them back, but by blessing them, by speaking kind words to them, by seeking to cause them to prosper. You know, when someone curses you, they speak evil against you, the fleshly response, our natural response, is to just want to reciprocate that. Oh, you're going to say that to me? Well, I'll say something even worse back to you. You know, that, that's kind of how our flesh is. We retaliate with something worse. And Jesus is saying, instead of cursing them back, respond with blessing them, speaking kindly to them. Do the opposite of what they're doing to you. The third way that Jesus says we can practically love our enemy is to pray for those who spitefully use you. The Greek word translated spitefully means to insult, to treat abusively, to use despitefully, to revile, to threaten. So when someone spitefully uses you, when they insult you, when they treat you abusively, Jesus says, respond by praying for them. Now remember, this is a practical way to love them. So it's not, Lord, I'm going to pray for them. Strike them down with a lightning bolt right now. You know, curse them. You know, that's not the kind of prayer that Jesus is saying. Pray for them a sincere prayer that God would bless them. And once again, that goes against everything that's in our flesh. When someone says and does those things to us, we don't want to respond by praying for them. We want to respond by doing something that's going to cause them pain like they caused us. Now Jesus is going to give three examples of how you can love your enemies. And these examples really aren't examples that we so much deal with today, but they were very familiar in the Jewish culture. Verse 29. To him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for him who takes your, away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. The first example that Jesus gives here, you probably heard many times, to him who strikes you on one cheek, turn the other also. Now in that culture, to strike someone on the cheek or to slap them across the cheek uh, was more of a way to show great dishonor and disrespect as opposed to a, a violent way of just beating them in the face. And so you would slap someone to demonstrate a great dishonor and disrespect to them. So Jesus isn't saying, you know, when someone punches you in the face, just turn the other cheek and just let them keep punching you and don't defend yourself. This isn't a, you know, a, a message of you should never defend yourself. This is speaking about when someone is dishonoring you and disrespecting you, which we don't like to have happening to us, instead of retaliating to that, he says, you know what, just turn the other cheek. Ultimately, allow them just to continue that. The second example that Jesus gives is from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. 
Now, in that culture, your cloak was your outer garment, your tunic was your inner garment, and then you had you know, basically like your undergarments below that. And so if someone took your cloak, instead of retaliating and trying to get your cloak back, Jesus says, you know what, just remove your tunic and give that as well. Ultimately, Jesus is saying, you know what, instead of retaliating to what people are doing, take one step further and demonstrate even more love instead of demonstrating hate and vengeance and retaliation. The third example that Jesus gives is, Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Jesus is ultimately speaking about, you know, when you let someone borrow your stuff, and they don't give it back to you, instead of getting all upset and saying, Give me my stuff, I let you have it, you've had it for this long now, you say, you know what, just give it to them. If they've taken it, and they haven't given it back, instead of causing some big issue about it, do something even greater. Instead of, you know, being all upset, and, you know, you can just let them have it. Now, with each one of these examples, Jesus is not only telling us that we shouldn't retaliate in some bad way, but he's saying there also should be a positive response. You know, your parents and mom probably always told you, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's a good starting point. Keep your mouth quiet if you have nothing nice to say. But even a better thing is instead of not, you know, responding with a negative thing, actually open your mouth and say something loving. That's ultimately what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know what, don't just focus on what you shouldn't do, how you shouldn't retaliate, but also understand, take a step of love and demonstrate something that's loving within that as well. And so with all these examples, that's what he's bringing us back to, raising the bar of how we deal with people and what they do against us. Don't retaliate, but respond in the right way. Respond in a way of love. And then Jesus gives what is referred to many times as the golden rule. A very good rule to live by, verse 31. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Here's a great principle to hold to when it comes to loving people, especially loving your enemies. Do to them what you would want them to do to you. So when they're doing horrible things to you, instead of responding by doing horrible things to them, do to them what you would have liked them to do to you. If you wanted them to speak kindly to you, then speak kindly to them. If you wanted them to treat you in a nice way, then treat them in a nice way. If you wanted them to show love, then show love to them. That's a great principle in marriage. When your spouse is rude and unloving and doing things that show you disrespect or whatever it may be, instead of responding in kind and just going back at them in the same way, hey, do to them what you would have wished they would have done to you in the begin with. When they're unloving, treat them lovingly and demonstrate, this is the way I would have liked to be treated and I'm going to respond that way. When they're unkind, treat them kindly. Show them that. It's a great principle in any relationship, and you'll find that you will diffuse so many problems when you respond in a way that doesn't make the problem worse, but actually diffuses it because of your kindness, because of your love, because of what you're doing here. So Jesus gives us this golden rule, and with that, he's going to finish this section on loving your enemies with a true test of love. Verse 32, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend and hope for nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Jesus ends this uh, challenge to love your enemies, really with, here's the true test of love. 
If you only love people who love you back, what good is that? Sinners do that. The world does that. Whoopie-doo. If you only love people who love you back, that's not very difficult. The true test of love, if you're willing to love those who don't love you, you're willing to do good to those who don't do good to you, you're willing to love your enemies who hate you, who curse you, who spitefully use you, who persecute you. You see, God doesn't want you just to love those who love you back because that's easy. And sometimes within the church world, it's like, you know what? Yeah, I love other Christians who love me back, and that's great. But those Christians who don't love me back, I don't love them. And those people in the world who don't love me, I don't love them. I only love the people who show me love. If you want to be loved, show me love. But Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way it should be. You should love the unlovable. You should love people who aren't showing you love. That's the true test. It's easy to love people who love you back. It's hard to love people who don't. By doing to them what you would want them to do to you. Blessing them, praying for them, giving to them, not retaliating to them. And as I mentioned, this command's impossible to do without the strength and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Without the love of God being given to you. Because the reality is we don't have this kind of love. We don't even have a desire to demonstrate this kind of love oftentimes. And so we have to be reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit to give us love for the people who don't love us, for the people who hate us, for the people who are coming against us to respond by saying, you know what, I am going to demonstrate love in my words, in my actions towards you. And that's going to be a wonderful demonstration of the love of Jesus Christ. You know, can the worship team come on up? As I said last week, when God commands us to do something, He also enables us and empowers us through His Spirit to do what He commanded. And this is one of those challenges, those commands, where you think, oh God, if you only knew my enemy, you would know that I could never do this. But it's understanding, you know what, when God says, love your enemy, He says, you know what, I've given you this command, trust me that I also will empower you to fulfill it. I will empower you to do it. And so as you're thinking of those people maybe right now that are in your life, they're thinking, these are definitely enemies for me. These are definitely people who spitefully speak about me and say things and do horrible things to me. And I do not have any feeling of love towards them. You know what? You don't have to have a feeling of love. Jesus doesn't say you need a feeling of love. He says you need to make a choice to demonstrate love to them. And I just want to close this morning putting some of this in practice. Jesus says, you know what? Pray for your enemies. And so... We don't need to be specific as to the name of the people that we're praying for, but I do want to just close praying for two things. One, most importantly, pray that God will give us love for our enemies. And two, that we can just pray for individuals. And you can just, you know, Lord, you know the person. And let's pray. Let's take some time together uh, just to pray for those that are in our life that we're struggling to love. That God would give us that love, that this week as we encounter them, that he would help us to demonstrate that love to them, uh, and that we don't leave this morning with, yeah, that's a good thing that we should do, but that we would actually come to God right now and ask him to enable us and to help us so as we go out this week, we'd actually be able to put it into practice. And so let's just take a few minutes. I'll leave it open. If you want to pray, uh, I encourage you to do that. We'll agree with you. Uh, If you don't, you don't have to. Uh, Then I'll close this in prayer, and then we'll end with a, a worship song. So if you desire to pray, please do.